Blog Talk Radio. This is BC Radio Live with Philip and Eric. Live online at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio. Aloha! Tonight on BC Radio Live, for the first half of the show, we will talk to Dave and Eric Taylor, officer of Forever on the Mountain, behind one of Mount Mary's places, and the first school of Canada, and the Syrians, and the Syrians, and the In the second half of the show, we will hear from Paul Murolo, author of The Pain of Slain, How Wolf, Hog, Today is Wednesday, September 3rd, and this is the beginning of the school year edition of BC Radio Live. The chat room is now open at blogtalkradio.com radio, and the live video is now running. I am Philip Wynn, button pusher for BC Radio Live and Chief Geek at BC Magazine, and I am joined tonight by Eric Olson and Lisa McKay. Eric is BC Magazine's founder and publisher, and Lisa is BC Magazine's executive editor. Hello to the both of you. Greetings. How are you? Evening. Well, it is it is an evening, and it's time for the show, so I am well. <laughs> Excellent. Let, let's hope that our, our uh, everything flows smoothly this week. Unlike last week, we did encounter some technical. I think the right term is disaster. But uh, yeah, it was a total debacle. Debacle. It was a nightmarish hell. It was horrifying. Both writers uh, at first uh, who were who were completely cut out. Not to mention the one who was cut in half, but at least he he got in half. But the other two were, you know, had no idea what was going on. I had no way of getting a hold of them actually, directly, um, you know, to let them know that what had happened. And they the next day we were trying to reschedule them both, and they tentatively said okay, and then both of them backed out of rescheduling. So that's how bad it was. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, we will uh, we will see what we can do anyway. Uh, fortunately, things seem to be working this week. Technology can be wonderful, and the technology that enables us to do the show is truly amazing when it works. So uh, let's hope it keeps doing so tonight. Well, I happen to have a conversation. I I, I had already had a an appointment, a phone appointment, set up with Alan Levy, the major grand poobah of Blog Talk Radio for the next day. That just happened to be <laughs> last Thursday. So, you know, I casually mentioned, oh, by the way, you know, a third of the way through our show, uh, the whole thing completely crapped out, and we were told it wasn't coming back, and uh, it, it was a, a total loss. So, uh, you know, get on that, bro. Yeah, well, what can you do? Well, we do have uh, our first guest on the line, so... Uh, well, that's excellent. We can go ahead and jump right in. This is BC Radio Live, live every week at blogtalkradio.com slash bcradio, co-hosting with Eric and Lisa. I am Philip. In the summer of 1967, Joe Wilcox led an expedition of 12 young men toward the summit of Mount McKinley, but only five of the 12 returned. More than half the expedition remained stranded and dying at 20,000 feet, trapped by one of the worst storms in mountaineering history, and yet 10 days passed with no rescue attempt. So it can be safely said that those seven men perished under mysterious circumstances at best. 
James M. Tabor's book, Forever on the Mountain, digs into the mystery, and he's here to talk with us about it tonight. He is a Vermont author. His website is jamesmtabor.com. Welcome to BC Radio Live, James. Well, thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. We are happy to have you. (laughs) Actually able to talk to you and everything. Are you a mountaineer yourself? Well, I was um, back in the 1980s. I did uh, I did quite a bit of climbing, quite a bit of climbing. I, I climbed two of the big mountains in Alaska um, and several of the lesser peaks. And uh, but now I'm uh, more of a, a Vermont mountain type, which means I get out in backcountry ski and do some recreational rock climbing and things like that. Now I noticed actually on your bio on your website, jamesmtabor.com, again for people who missed it. Uh, it mentions that you attempted Mount McKinley and uh, did summit Mount Sanford. Yeah, that's um, correct. Um, and, and attempted is a is kind of a polite way of saying that the mountain just kicked my butt. Um, <laughs> mine, <laughs> my, mine and my partner. We. Uh, I'm sure you're not we, the first or the last. You know, I, I think you're right. It's still happening today, but we we just grossly underestimated the mountain and. Um, you know, and so uh, it, we we paid the price for that. But I was able to go back a couple years later and climb Mount Sanford, which is, I think, it's the sixth highest mountain in Alaska. Um, just a, a, a wonderful challenge and a, a great peak to be on because it's very remote. Um, and did some climbing in lesser some of the lesser peaks in the Chugach and things like that. So I got enough of a taste of it to understand, you know, how how mean a mountain McKinley really can be. Now, what is the extrapolating this out a bit um and, and of course we want to talk very specifically about you know your story and, and your book of course and, and mount mckinley but um what is kind of the common thread that leads to these uh you know mountaineering disasters you hear more about i suppose the himalayas and what then i suppose there's just more people maybe going over there or there's just more more attention there you know you hear but i mean you hear about these you know, completely seasoned pros who, you know, just find death and disaster. And, God, I'm always reminded of the, the you know, the, the, the I, I suppose it's iconic by now, but, you know, the cell phone call from the mountain from the dying man. I mean, God, right. that's just, that just grips at my heart, you know. I mean, it's just so awful to think about. I mean, that that really is kind of a dead man walking type thing, you know, and and, and in a way the – you know, it's just this weird combination of of primal, you know, with with modern technology. And but anyway, I, I guess the, you know, I'm, I'm looking. Is there a central underlying thing that that people do wrong, or or just don't know how to handle, or what 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 causes you know these these disasters when they do happen? You know, there's a couple of things in this day and age, which is to say the 21st century. And your your anecdote there about the the the, the satellite phone call between the dying mountaineer and his wife, which is is really tragic, uh, points points to one of them. There are so many technological advantages, and there's so much publicity devoted to the to the great mountains of the world now that I think we tend to develop maybe uh, a, a too great a degree of familiarity and comfort with them. Ah. I think particularly that happens on mountains like Everest where uh, wealthy and sometimes talented amateurs can get on the mountain and very quickly get in over their heads. Interestingly enough, it was it was different in 1967, and one of the things that, that really struck me over and over as I researched the book was <laughs> how, how very different a time it was in 1967 there were no such sophisticated um, communications capabilities 
on McKinley or on any of the major mountains at that time. There were no cell phones, no satellite phones, no GPS. Radios were just beginning to be used, and even those were very primitive. They had line-of-sight contact only, so you had to be able to see the person you were talking to. So one of the things that happened to the Mountaineers in 67 was they were not able to get real-time, good, dependable meteorological weather forecasting information. That was one thing. And another thing was that once they were trapped by what turned out to be the worst storm in McKinley's history, they were not able to communicate with anybody. Now, that said, that does not absolve the powers that be from uh, from what should have been legitimate attempts to come to their aid. Uh, and that was one of the sadder things about the, uh, you know, about the about the tragedy back in '67. Interesting. So the. You know, on one level, the 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 very primal act of climbing, you know, I mean, that hasn't changed. I imagine, you know, ever. Uh, I would think, of course, the equipment has improved or and become more sophisticated as, as far as the climbing itself goes. The climbing equipment, and and I would think the the equipment that uh, shields against the weather has probably improved some. But you know, fundamentally, uh, mountain climbing, I guess, is is the same as it's always been. But then on the other hand, like you say, I think that really makes a lot of sense that people do have a sense, and it's not just mountains, it's a lot of things, where, that, that, that they are somehow familiar or and it's somehow less dangerous because they've seen pictures, they've seen video, they've seen TV shows, they've seen movies. Um, you know, and and, and we, I think at some fundamental level, this is something that really interests me actually, we, we feel that we have some sort of control over that which we have – uh, experienced, and yet the kind of experience we're talking about is purely vicarious. So it's really a false sense of security. It, it really is. And you know, that, that, that word control, you really nailed something very, very important about, about mountain climbing and, and certain other kinds of things. Mountaineers talk about things called objective dangers. And by those, they refer to things over which they have absolutely no control. They would include things like avalanches, crevasses, wind and weather, altitude, um, things that you can plan for, but you have absolutely no control over. And those remain the same today, whether you're on McKinley or Everest or any, any place else, as they did in 67. And you can be, you know, as well prepared, as thoroughly conditioned, as, as, as pop, you know, wonderfully equipped as possible, but the objective dangers are still there. And and looking at things on television and hearing people talk about in real time from the summit on TV, that doesn't change those objective dangers. You know, as one guy said to me, the mountain doesn't give a damn whether you're there or not. And uh, and it's really important for people to keep in mind that when when they go out into the big mountains, honestly. Uh, Why don't you um, just uh, perhaps give an overview, uh, or you know, detailed course if you'd like, but... Uh, you know of of the story of of your story. Sure. How, how did you come to it, and uh, you know what 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 drew you into it, and what did you discover? Seems like you you came upon some some original information that hadn't really uh, come to light before. So you know why don't we start concentrating on your your story specifically? Sure. Well, I after I got out of you know really serious active climbing. I remained because I'm, I'm also uh, a writer, and I've written about adventure sports for for magazines for years and years and years. I remained pretty conversant with the literature of mountaineering. But one day, and I think it was 2000, maybe 2002 or 2001, 
I stumbled across a book in a small Vermont library, and it was it was called The Hall of the Mountain King, and it was one survivor's account of this horrible disaster in 1967. I mean, at the time, it was the worst such tragedy in North American history and the third worst in all mountaineering history, which was really saying something. Well, I'd never heard of it, and that really caught my attention right there. I said, how could something like this have flown under the radar of, of people like myself for, for 40 years? So I started digging a little bit, and I found that um, that there are a couple of things that happened. One of them was that it was the height of the Vietnam War, so there were lots of other horrible, more large, larger tragedies going on. But another one was that in the aftermath of the tragedy, the government agencies which were responsible for administering McKinley were really not anxious for much news to come out about the thing uh, because, in fact, as my research indicated, they had pretty well messed up uh, what was the worst tragedy on McKinley up to that time. But when I say messed up, I'll get to that in a little more detail in a minute. But essentially what happened was 12 experienced, capable, well-conditioned, well-equipped young men set out to climb McKinley in July of 67. Uh, Seven of them died, as you mentioned earlier. Five came down. But none of those seven bodies were ever recovered. So there were no diaries, journals, cameras, anything uh, to shed light on what exactly happened to them. Despite the fact that they were trapped up near the summit for 10 days and that the Park Service and the Air Force and the Rescue Coordination Center knew about their plight, nothing was done to rescue them. I mean, literally nothing. And this despite the fact that five months earlier, when three guys had been trapped up, same place roughly, a huge, a huge rescue effort had been mounted within about 12 hours. So um, I learned those kind of unanswered questions. I said, my gosh, you know, there's probably a book in here. And so I started to pry information loose from, uh, with the Freedom of Information Act request from the government. I interviewed some of the survivors, and it became clear that, yeah, there was a lot more to the story than had been told. Um, and uh, so I set out to do the research, which took about a two years. I interviewed all the survivors, many of the people who had been working and on the mountain at the time the thing happened. Um, got lots and lots and lots of documentation um, that had never come to light before, and uh, and then wrote the book. <laughs> so um, that's that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but hopefully that uh, addresses some of it. Oh well, sure. I mean, as far as how you you came across it, and that, yeah, that wow, that really is interesting because, uh, like you say, for someone who's in, as engaged in that field as you are and have been, and a veteran of it uh to to not even be aware of it you know that story until recently boy that really <laughs> the whole the government angle kind of really kind of caught me off guard there cuz that's uh you know i mean even with all the evidence to the contrary i still tend to want to believe in the in the uh in the the positive attributes of government especially in a situation like that i mean it seems like you know Kind of, kind of the rescue side of it, uh, of of government. Uh, you know, that's kind of those are the good guys. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, that's they, our, they, my impression. That's our impression, I think, or a general impression. They they are indeed the good guys. And you know, I say in the book that it took a really amazing confluence of of peculiar and unfortunate circumstances all coming together on the top of the mountain at that particular time to make this thing happen. And 
ironically, one of the things that had that was that sort of suppressed the government's desire to mount a very expensive, very large rescue was the fact that they had done so five months earlier, and had been heavily criticized in the press and, and by the public for. One of the quotes was they were uh, wasting taxpayers' money to rescue lunatic climbers. So they had really been flogged very badly in the public press, in the media, and were a little bit gun shy. The other serious problem was that the, the men responsible for managing the park in those days were not mountaineers. Now, today, if you go up there, you'll find the best, most skillful, best equipped search and rescue operation on earth, really, operating in Mount, in Mount, in Mount McKinley um, National Park. Back in those days, it was quite different. There was a staff of bureaucrats who were not climbers, and so they really, really had trouble apprehending how bad off the seven men were up near the summit. And, um, you know, they weren't they, they weren't evil men, and they certainly weren't uh, weren't um, you know had no ill will toward the climbers, but they just didn't really understand how bad things were were becoming and had become. So. Unfortunate set of circumstances that really conspired against the seven dead men. But I, I will tell you that in the aftermath of the tragedy, what happened was that the government forces realized they had really messed up, and they looked for a place to put blame that would deflect it from themselves. And unfortunately, they targeted the leader of the expedition and the seven dead men who were not alive, of course, to defend themselves. And they said that. They were too inexperienced. They weren't well equipped. They should never have been on the mountain. They were in over their heads. And uh, one analyst used the word suicidal, you know, essentially implying that these guys really brought about their own destruction. And that mis misapprehension lingered for 40 years, really unfairly, as my my research turned uh, uh, revealed. Well, I would certainly think the families weren't happy about that. <laughs> the families were 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 livid. Uh, first of all, the families were devastated that you know seven young men, really in the prime of their lives, these were guys in their early and mid twenties, um, that those lives had been snuffed out, that there was no closure because the bodies were never recovered, and perhaps worst of all, that in in addition to that, uh, it was said quite publicly that blunders that the, the climbers had blundered so badly that they brought about their own death. So the families were livid. There was a lot of talk of lawsuits. Um, none were actually filed, but uh, but that was something that those families had to live with, you know, for 40 years, and, and um, really until, until the book came out and told a different side of the story. Now, one of the things that you, uh, you mention or talk about in the book is that there were conflicting reports coming from the expedition leader and one of the surviving members of the expedition who uh, you know, really disagreed, and, and how did those conflicting reports end up affecting, uh, you know, I guess basically the, uh, the aftermath of the, the disaster and then also the research for your book? Uh, quite a bit, actually. The first book that I mentioned to you, Hall of the Mountain King, was written by Howard Snyder, one of the survivors, and um, Howard had got on very badly um, with the expedition leader, Joe Wilcox. I mean, they really uh, experienced what I call a hate at first sight. Um, they really disliked each other intensely, and, and the more stressful the environment became on the mountain, the less they liked each other. And so Howard came off the mountain legitimately convinced, I think, that Joe um, that, that Joe was at least partly responsible, Joe Wilcox, for the climbers' deaths. And he wrote a book, uh, which was published by... Well, one of the major publishers of the day that that essentially said that it was 240 some pages of indictment of Joe Wilcox and the dead guys. 
Well, Joe was blindsided and incensed by that, so he wrote his own book. It was called White Winds, and it was you know a self-defense of his leadership and of his team's um, of his team's capabilities. But it didn't come out until something like 11 years after the tragedy. It took him a long time to research and write it, and um, by that time, the consensus had been shaped by Howard's book and by reports from some um, Park Service experts in the aftermath of the tragedy. And so Joe's book was really too little too late. But what became apparent to me was that between the extremes of, of Howard's really vitriolic indictment and Joe's strenuous self-defense, there was, you know, like they say in the X-Files, the truth was still out there, and it was probably someplace in between, and, uh, and that turned out to be the case. Interesting. You know, backing, backing up a little bit, I thought of um, when you were talking about why uh, we were talking about the response and and uh, the, the circumstances that had led to the government uh, relative you know lack of response and the fact that they had been perceived as over responding. I was just thinking of the the Katrina um, you know analogy. I mean we're, oh, we're yeah. hearing that we're hearing that already that oh you know there's overreaction to Gustav and oh there's only a billion dollars damage this time and eh, you know they didn't have to evacuate uh, two, three million people, they could have stuck around, you know. I mean, you're already hearing revisionism, you know. I mean, so, I mean, in many ways, the government really is, you know, damned either way. It's kind of unfortunate. You know, that, that's a really, really good point, and I, I feel for them. Um, I, you know, I think if you're going to err <laughs> when human life is involved, you err on the side of excess and you do everything you can and, and more to protect life, which I think, you know, laudably the government really did in the, in the case of Gustav. And, um and unfortunately, it was the reverse situation with uh, the fellows on McKinley in, in, in 67. But, um, but that, that's a very good point that you just made, absolutely. Back to the, the actual story. So, I mean, in a nutshell, what did happen? I mean, what happened to them, to these guys? The, the, the fellows who died, the seven of them, uh, five of them summited and were descending from the summit when a, a, just a, an immense, I mean, a hurricane-force storm struck. Because there were no good communications and no good meteorology, and because storms like that can strike McKinley literally within a matter of minutes, they had no warning. They did not. They were on the summit. They they sent a radio broadcast. And it was very jaunty. They said everything's a okay. You know, please send some postcards to our parents. We're in good shape. They started down, and 30 minutes later, the storm hit. So they did what all good mountaineers would have done. Uh, they were trapped in the open. They dug snow caves, and they hunkered down, and they thought, well, you know, we can we can wait out a two-day storm, a three-day storm. We've got some emergency supplies and sleeping bags, and, you know, we'll be fine. And they would have, except that, as I said, this storm was the worst in McKinley history, and that's saying an awful lot. It lasted about 10 days. Um, it had winds that peaked at about 150 miles an hour, wind chilled, you know, wind chilled temperatures way down below the charts, and probably after about the fourth day, when they ran out of water and ran out of food and all their insulating material was wet and soaking and they became hypothermic, that's probably when they began to, to descend into, um, into death. But the short answer to your question is that they were trapped by just a horrible 100-year uh, storm and, um, and were not able to survive it. If they had been airdropped supplies, extra few food, extra fuel, dry sleeping bags, things like that, during one of the brief clearing periods in the storm, um, it, it's possible, not not definite, but possible that they, some of them at least, might have had uh, might have survived. They certainly would have had a better chance at survival, but uh, but that unfortunately was not done. 
So the bottom line is it really was, I mean, it was Mother Nature ultimately that that did them in. That, exactly right. And the unfortunate thing is that in the aftermath, uh, you know, it was said that um, that this was just another storm, no big deal. Um, these guys, you know, should have been able to, to endure it and to weather it and sit it out. Well, in fact, it was not just another storm. Um, meteorological reports were, were, were very, very clear about that. So, but yes, the short answer is Mother Nature got them. That's exactly correct. Yep. These two guys, Howard Snyder and Joe Wilcox, are are they still alive today? I know I know you you spoke with both of them while researching your book. Yeah, they, they both are. Uh, Joe divides his time between Seattle and Hawaii, uh, and uh, Howard is the director of one of the more prominent uh, historical museums in Canada. Actually, they're. Both in their uh, early 60s, they're very fit. They're still active outdoors people. Joe is a, a very enthusiastic blue water sailor and uh, an Olympic-level masters distance runner. He's just an amazing guy. But interestingly enough, in the 40 years since, you know, their their uh, alienation was so intense on the mountain that they have never, never spoken in the aftermath of that tragedy. And I suggested to each of them that maybe they might want to use the book process here as a as an opportunity to kind of reconcile, and they both looked at me like I was nuts. You know, <laughs> no, 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 we we don't want to do that. <laughs> what kind of feedback have you gotten from them about your book? Given that I suppose it must it must question or or, or counter each things each of them have written in their own books. Yeah, it really does, and I'll, I'll be quite honest with you. That was one of the things I was most concerned about because I I want I tried to be and I wanted to be as sensitive to their situation as possible. Joe Wilcox liked the book enough that he wrote a written endorsement and has asked the publisher to include it in subsequent editions. Howard Snyder didn't do that, but he uh, we've spoken on the telephone a number of times and, and corresponded by email and past. And he also liked likes the book very much. He said it was sensitive. It was um, it revealed new material that he didn't know that nobody could have known, and he's very very glad uh, that it was written. So that was. Believe me, that was a huge relief um, for to, to hear that from those guys. But still not willing. So, so it sounds like he may have softened a bit, but still not enough to to speak to Joe Wilcox. Yeah, I you know, I mean, I have good relationships with with both of them, but they, uh, yeah, boy, I'll tell you what, they say time heals all wounds, but I don't think uh, I don't think it has done much to heal the wounds that that they brought off the mountain with them. And, and quite honestly, I think the wounds, those wounds were worsened in the aftermath of the tragedy by Howard's book, which very publicly pointed fingers at Joe, and then Joe's book, which very publicly said, essentially, um, Howard Snyder is a liar and, um, and has, has written a, a book that's just full of, of misstatements and, and twisted facts. So there was a lot of post-facto um, animosity generated as well you know uh yes the uh <laughs> things are always complicated when when they move to the uh to the literary level you know <laughs> but Boy, because, you got, you're not kidding you got that right <laughs> you know because it's out there for everyone to see and and uh you know you, there's there's no taking it back you know no, Ver- verbal disagreements verbal things i think tend to dissipate but uh, you know, if it's in print, it's you, you can't really take it back, and you, and you, really uh, it, you know that's it's very sad, but but interesting, an interesting example of of human nature that 
because you know you would think that the underlying experience would ultimately be more powerful than than whatever the differences are, but you know, yes. but clearly not. <laughs> not, not unfortunately not not in this case. No, you're right. Um, so, I, I, boy, this is re- talk about a quick uh, uh, half hour. We we normally have as many as four guests, and so the the visits are limited to fifteen minutes. But this has sure gone fast. It's really fascinating stuff, and I, it's not even anything I know a whole lot about. That's always what's kind of the most fun about doing the show is learning. Has about that much it. time passed already? I mean, yeah, I'm full half hour. We are yeah. we're like uh, nine twenty eight or nine twenty nine. What I wanted to ask you, kind of a, a final thoughts, were wh- what did you gain most from the experience of writing the book and, and learning, you know, about this, this story and putting all that together. What what do you come away with? Yeah, uh, there there were there were two really, really main things. One of them was a, a great feeling of um I guess accomplishment and relief at at having looked at what the seven dead men, what they brought to the mountain and what their contributions and what their sacrifices were and being able to say in public these guys were not incompetent. They weren't bumblers. They didn't commit suicide. They were good, competent climbers doing what they loved to do, and you know they were caught by a 100-year storm. So being able to set the record straight for guys who couldn't talk for themselves, that felt, that felt really, really good. The other thing was more personal, and that was that um, – you know, these fellows went up there and they they prepared for the experience of, the, of their lives. They thought they, they they were joyous, they were overjoyed and ecstatic, and yet seven of them were snuffed out up there. So I came away with that. I'm 60 years old, and I should have known this, and I do to a certain extent. But I came away and said, you know what? Every second I can spend with my loved ones and you know my family and my horse and my dog. Man, those are precious, and don't take a single one of those for granted because you know what? The next second could be. You know, I could be hit by a bus. So I think those two things really, really were valuable for me. As Warren Zevon said, enjoy every sandwich. <laughs> I'm a great fan of his, and that's a great quote. You betcha. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, the website is jamesmtabor.com. That's J-A-M-E-S-M-T-A-B-O-R.com. Uh, the book is Forever on the Mountain, the truth behind one of mountaineering's most controversial and mysterious disasters. It is available in uh, hardback at this point. And in fact, it's it's, actually, I'll, do, I'll say it was just released in paperback in July, so you can get it that way now, oh, too. Good, very good. And I see it was a, a gr- discovered great new writers uh, selection by Barnes & Noble last year. It was that, and uh, it won the grand prize at the 2007 Banff Mountain Festival. So it, you know, it's been well received by the critics as, as by the public, and I'm I'm very I'm very honored by that. Well, congratulations on that. We really appreciate you talking with us. It's a it's a really important, profound story, and I I can just as a writer, you know, we're all writers ourselves. I I can just feel, you know, what it must mean to you to be able to to give those families back. Um, you know, in in a sense, to give them back their their lost loved ones. You know, yeah, and that you redeemed I mean, them. You redeemed their 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 honor and their their you know their competence. You betcha. I mean, that's something I'll I'll take with me in my heart. You know, to the to the very end of my life. I'm so grateful to have having been done that, and I'm grateful to you for having given me so much time and asked so many great questions and let me ramble on like this. It's been a wonderful interview. Thank well, you so we much. we we appreciate it. And we really enjoy talking to. <laughs> <laughs> to to people who like to share their stories, you know, it's 
when you when you do have more more time than usual to fill, you know, you, you never know. You get people who are the smartest people in the world, and they're they're great writers, and you, and you ask them like with me, especially these long, elaborate, you know, paragraph long questions, and they respond yes. <laughs> Well, as you've no doubt gathered, I got a lot more words in me than that. <laughs> well, we we appreciate it. It's all real interesting stuff, and you're very fun and interesting to talk to. We appreciate it very much. Thank you all. Take care and have a good night. Okay, you too. Well, that was in fact interesting, and it looks like it may be the wrap up of our show, uh, since it appears that our our second guest has not in fact surfaced in time for his segment. No chain of blame. No, indeed, we will all be left with the uh, apparently inaccurate perception that the uh, subprime mortgage crisis is due to uh, lenders and borrowers uh, overreaching, uh, and we will not, in fact, understand that uh, that Wall Street is to blame, as as our, our uh, previously scheduled next author would have made clear to us, apparently. Gosh, well, I don't know. Maybe we should give him a few more minutes. It is only two, three Two three minutes late. We we certainly know. Uh, I don't know. I I gotta tell you. I we uh, we have a new we have a new guy who who replaced our our good friend Dave uh, at uh, at Newman and uh, Dave Dave went off to law school. So good for him. But a lot of the authors certainly not nothing near all. But I don't know. Maybe you know two thirds or something like that of the authors we get come through an agency. Uh, called sure. Newman, and um, uh, since we've <laughs> we've had our new guy, uh, the the percent the percentage of of successfully completed interviews. Although we certainly can't blame him for last week, but uh, the percentage has been down. It's it, you know it's like anything else. I think you got to stay on top of people. You just can't take yeah. it for granted. You know, and, and no like matter the, what it is, there's people right. who don't really show up for the Today Show. You know, Tonight Show. Really stones, given the you know our own technical issues last week, so I'm I'm feeling especially charitable. <laughs> well, yeah, sure. It just it just reminds me, you know, I it, before I got involved, kind of with the active, you know, back in my naive days, before I was involved on a day to day basis with you know what in the broadest sense might be called. Uh, showbiz or, or the, you know, the media or, or uh, that kind of thing. You know, you, you have the sense that it's all this magical wonderland and everything happens the way it's supposed to and and, and everyone follows their own self-interest, you know, because why wouldn't they? Well, I mean, you hear all the time, people just flat out don't show up for an appearance on, you know, The Tonight Show or, or, or the Oscars. I mean, like really big, big things where people just blow it off for whatever reason and it just you know, it, you understand why – I used to think a producer, you know, when you think of the title producer, and obviously it has all different kinds of meanings. It means something quite different in the music business where it's essentially the person uh, – kind of a parallel, I suppose, to a movie producer, the person who's responsible for, for bringing all the, the disparate elements together and, and putting together that final product. And in film, it's essentially that. But, you know, in, in, in radio, uh, a producer is basically a glorified gopher and, and someone who just hounds the guests, you know, and stays on top of them and makes sure they're going to show up and has all the contact information, all the phone numbers and all that. And, you know, we all have other things that are going on, and we, we kind of just rely on and we assume things are going to go correctly. I mean, you know, we don't spend a bunch of time bugging people and calling them up three times on the day they're supposed to appear and all that, like, you know, quote-unquote radio producers do. But, 
I don't know. I, mean, I, I Yet again, we say this every time, but, you know, we, we need to, and I, I will reiterate to our, our new contact, we really do need, whenever remotely feasible or possible, we need contact information on the people. We need their phone number. We need something because, I mean, how many times have we been able to, and this happens, you know, all the time during, uh, for the daytime slots too, where, you know, it's been we've been able to rescue it, you know, by tracking the person down. It's a lot easier in the daytime because I can get a hold of the PR people and all that. But you know, we're doing a show at nine o'clock at night Eastern, and <laughs> and you know, people are gone. You know, you can't. It's not. You don't have the the working uh, world to rely upon, and so uh, yeah, we just have to, you know, but. If you'll recall, too, this is kind of how we got into booking as many guests as we do. Because, you know, if you book four and three show up, you're fine. You know, but if you book one and he doesn't show up, you're SOL, man. Yeah, I think it was kind of funny because we used to book uh, two and have only one show up. And then it was, oh, gosh, that's a bit long. Then we started booking four. And what would happen is all four would show up every week. And someone from the other week, too. (laughs) Yeah, that was clearly too many. So... Uh, yeah, if we could actually deliver two, then that would be uh, that would probably be ideal. We certainly had a great time talking to uh, James Tabor tonight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you don't ever know in advance uh, how it's going to go, but um, yeah, that was that was great. He was a really interesting topic, and um, you know, kind of interesting on all levels. The, the facts of the story itself, the ramifications, the implications, the the sort of socio-cultural aspects of it, it is um, it is a great topic. And like I always say, man, I, I'm going to have to read that book. Yeah, one of the things we actually didn't get to that I think is interesting in the book is that there was a another team of climbers that was uh, on the mountain a number of days behind the, the team that eventually uh, mostly perished, in fact. Um, and when the government wouldn't launch uh, or just, for whatever reason, didn't launch a rescue attempt, that uh, team of amateur climbers accelerated and tried to basically race up the mountain and single-handedly rescue uh, the seven who were trapped. And so that that is uh, apparently quite an interesting story that uh, we didn't get a chance to get to. Anyway, I think uh, I think we should probably call this the end of the show. And, no, that's uh, fine. And farewell for another week. Uh, I can live with it, man. <laughs> well, thanks again to James M. Tabor for uh, talking with us. It was a, a true delight. And as always, thanks and Eric for hosting the show. I am Philip Wynn, and this has been DC Radio Live. We broadcast live every single Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, which is 8 p.m. Central, at p.m. Mountain, 6 p.m. So be sure to visit us live, participate in the chat room, watch the live videos, and uh, this live broadcast audio archives are available online. So you can to the podcast at PC Radio Live and listen to the listen on your computer, your iPod, or the other. Until next week, aloha!